It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you as always. Jerry, how is it today? Uh, it is fine today. Steve. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fan Cast. Instagram, we are at the Rush Cast. Email Jerry, the Rush Cast at gmail.com. The bass intro is Lex, as always. And Jerry, we've got a fantastic guest today. But before we get into the fantastic guest, I hear you have a fantastic email to read from one of our listeners. Yes. And this is another, I just got this email today. Oh, cool. So I, so I haven't sent it to you. So this, is, this will be new to you. Too. A surprise. I love surprise. A surprise. This is from Jason. He's in Columbus, Ohio. He says, love the podcast. Big fan, big fan. Because I was born with a brother seven years older and I was introduced to Rush through his copy of 2112. And by the eighth grade in 1984, I was totally hooked. I was officially the Rush guy in my school. My upbringing with religious parents was a straight-laced Midwestern Protestant affair with lots of church, Sunday school, and youth groups. It wasn't exactly a scene from Footloose, but they certainly weren't buying Rush albums for me either. <laughs> so, I so I scraped together every penny earned from lawn mowing to buy every album in their catalog. That same year, my mom taught my Sunday school class and directed our youth choir. Yeah, not exactly the way to meet girls. But I kept up relations... <laughs> But I kept up relations and went along to get along. One morning, she was teaching a lesson about how we shouldn't conform to the world around us, but live a Christian life resisting the temptations of the outside world. This, of course, caused my teenage rush-infused mind to turn to the professor and quote the chorus from Subdivisions. My mom didn't know a thing about Rush, but to her credit, thought it was a compelling quote. She even allowed me to take it a step further. As I mentioned, she was the choir director, so she carried along a boombox to play music. Me, being so obsessed by Rush and never wanting to be away from it, just happened to have signals in the second cassette player next to the choir music. With a quick rewind, I cued the tape right to subdivisions and pressed play. These sheltered kids had no idea what hit them. My mom hung in there long enough to get to the course, and it was a moment that I will never forget. Neil with his universal truth of sticking to your principles and living your life despite the pull of the outside forces was there for all to hear. I would have to think that might be the only time Rush helped drive home a lesson in a Methodist Sunday school class. <laughs> I know I was happy to play a part and still hold those principles to heart. Conform or be cast out. And then he says, lunch is on me if you're ever in Columbus, Ohio. Wow. I love the fact that we can have lunch in pretty much every city in America and Great Britain. We got to look up Jason if we're ever in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> it's fantastic. Thanks, Jason. And I was going to say the same thing he did. How often does Rush get played at church? Right. Not very often. No, it's like that Simpsons where they play in Agata De Vida for like 18 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared, as I mentioned, we have a fantastic guest today on the Rush Fan Cast, award-winning filmmaker who has had a long relationship with Rush. Most notably, he's the director of the brilliant documentary, Time Stands Still. Dale Heslip, thanks for joining us on the Rush Fancast. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you too. Why don't you start, Dale, by telling us how your relationship with Rush began? When did you first become aware of them, and how did you start working with them? I guess they, they got on my radar with moving pictures. but that, that was just as a fan, but then I was at a production company and Getty's brother worked at that production company. And uh, the, the production company did, did music videos. And I was an art director. 
So I got to sort of sit in on some of the things, some of the sessions to prep for some Rush music videos as an art director. But then I always had aspirations to be a director, and Alan knew that. So when he set up his own production company, he asked me to write some creative for, uh, I actually forget what songs I wrote on. I think the first one I wrote I didn't get. But then the next one I wrote was Nobody's Hero. Getty was tweaked by it. And we started, I knew Getty, and, and uh, we started, uh, you know, collaborating on what that video could become. And um, he, we, I mean, we all loved it, actually. It worked out really well. It, you know, it wasn't a big, big song for them, but the video worked out well. So then um, the next one was oh, Half the World. And same kind of thing, wrote a treatment, Getty liked it, we, we jammed, we figured out what to do, and had fun shooting it. And then the third one I did for them was Driven. Yes. Which was that steampunky kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Which is probably my favorite of the of the three, just because it's just odd and visually intriguing. In fact, Getty called it out on a on an interview uh, with Rolling Stone years ago when he was picking his favorite videos that had been done. And I mean that one that one still stands up, I think, today. And you use that, they use that clip a few times in concert, clips from that video. What happened was all the videos always ended up sort of in the backdrop of the concerts. Um, and I wasn't involved in the concerts at that point. But the, there was always visuals as backdrop for the shows. So in R30, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't worked with them because MTV wasn't playing Rush videos. You know, so it was a waste of money to be doing these epic videos <laughs> right. and then not getting played. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I was still pals with Getty and, and you know, I'd see him occasionally. And uh, R30, there was an opening animation that was done that he thought was just kind of boring. It was just sort of a retrospective of 30 years. And, he, you know, he's a quirky, funny guy. Like, as you guys know, him and Alex are comedians in fact i got a, a little little tangent we were casting for one of our films which we'll probably talk about later and the casting director was having a hard time because we needed young lookalikes who could play instruments act but but look like them and, and she was struggling and i said okay really all we need are two comedians and a really good drummer <laughs> <laughs> um what happened was on our 30 Eddie wasn't really happy with the opening. It was just a bit too stiff and he wanted to add something to it. So he invited me to his place with Alan and asked if he's, they wanted to introduce uh, some kind of character coming out of a dream. And we went through a whole bunch of different names. We ended up with Jerry Stiller. Um, and so me and Alan went down to uh, New York, shot at the Trump tower in New York with (laughs) Jerry Stiller (laughs) who was a sweetheart of a guy. Like when I gave him a hug, I'm like, his skin was so soft. It's like, Oh my <laughs> God. But we had the best time and we had him jumping up and down on the bed and like do a, you had a rush t-shirt on. And well, it ended up doing really well. The fans like really loved it. So that opened the door to the next part of my relationship with the band, which was every time they'd go out on tour, we would shoot these opening films. And uh, so the next one was, you know, I forget the tour. Snakes and Arrows, right? Yes. Yeah. So then um, we, we got together and started jamming out some ideas and, and came up with this idea that 
Getty would wake up out of a dream. Alex and Neil were in bed and Getty would wake up out of a dream and you'd see the Far Cry carriage and the, and the Airstream trailer. And we went through all these, uh, all these different actors that could play opposite Getty and they weren't available or they weren't interested or whatever. And then I'm like, Getty does this great Scottish accent. And, and I'm like, hey, why don't you be the guy? And he's like, no, no, no. I said, no, you could be, you could do your Scottish accent. You be the guy. We'll dress you up in the kilt and the thing and the Harry Satchel. He goes, that's the name. We're going to call him Harry Satchel. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we arrived at um, Getty being the Scottish Harry Satchel, where he comes into the trailer and he tells him to get the hell out on stage. <laughs> anyway, it just it kept going. Every tour, there was a new, a new film. You know, I wanted to circle back just on uh, Jerry Stiller. Was he chosen because it's, it would be an odd thing for a man like Jerry Stiller to be totally into Rush? It, yes. Yeah, it was. It was like uh, he was into it. He, we, we really liked the idea of it. All those films ended up being this, this quirky way to start the show. And um, we, we thought he was just an odd, an odd choice. We, we loved him from Jerry Seinfeld and we loved his, you know, his voice, his rant and his comedy abilities, but he was amazing. Like the, the, the weird thing was, sorry, not the weird thing. The, the cool thing was we were waiting to hear from the agents to see if he was officially going to do it. And I was walking into an award show for commercials because I directed commercials for a bunch of years and I get a phone call uh, and I, I didn't notice until after the show, I come out and there's a voicemail from Jerry Stiller. And so I call the number back and, um, and Mira answers the phone and I go, hi, it's uh, Dale Heslop. I'm calling to talk to Jerry about a rush video. She's like, Hoo! I said, uh, uh, I'm, uh, we're calling from, we're doing a rush video and Jerry might be involved. Uh, can I talk to Jerry? He's like, who? And I said, uh, uh, she kind of, and then finally she's like, Jerry, it's for you. <laughs> and it was like that awesome Ann Mira scream. I'm like, I wish I could have recorded that. Oh, it was man. actually so much fun. But when we met him, that guy was such a pro. Like he came in, we had sort of sketched out some lines and stuff, but he was running his lines with his assistant. And we're like, Jerry, it's not like that. It's just like, we're just riffing. We're just sort of ad-libbing. You can make this up. It's sort of, you know, we wanted to make it for improv -y, but he was, um, yeah, he, he was a real, he was a real gem. And then we, we, we worked with him again, I think um, two years later, we, we did a, a thing we called the film, uh, What's That Smell? <laughs> with yep. uh, there, Getty was on the road looking for chicken. Yeah. Um, and uh, Alex played a crossing guard, a security guy, and Neil was a, um, a G.I. Joe drummer. Um, <laughs> so Jerry, Jerry participated in that one as well. So on your website, Dale, you describe your work as comedy with style, and that's, that's right up Rush's alley for sure. What about the uh, Time Machine intro with Gershon, Slobovich, and O'Malley? <laughs> Tell us uh, who was the brainchild of that. Well. Okay, so that's probably my favorite one of all. And, and what happened with that, the uh, Beyond the Lighted Stage had come out. And um, we had jokingly talked about, well, let's tell the real history of Rush. <laughs> so I had, I had proposed that the band uh, had started out as a polka band. Um, 
and the and then we had these other ideas where Neil lived in a tree and we had all <laughs> we were just like all over the place but the the polka band thing really stuck but i had this other idea to have this uh, device that I don't know if you guys remembered comic books where on the back page you could order like a submarine or you could order weird shit, right? Oh, yeah. Sea monkeys. X-ray specs. X-ray specs, yes. <laughs> so I had this idea that you could send away for a, a sound-changing device. So when I mentioned it to Getty one, in one, one of our creative jam sessions, um, he's like, yeah, and we can call it the gefilter. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was that this the filter would change the sound from country to disco to whatever. So um, we, uh, the, way, the way these sessions always worked was me, Alan, and Getty would get together at his house and sort of brainstorm. And we'd bring all our ideas to the table, and then we would go, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. I'd go away, and I'd write up like an outline for it. We'd get together and reconvene. But when we landed on this one, we ended up hiring um, – a producer uh, we'd worked with a bunch of times, uh, Lou Pomonti, super talented producer, keyboard player, performer. I'd worked with him on a couple of TV show things. and But we needed to do a polka version of Spirit of Radio, a disco version, and a country version. So Lou wrote all, all these arrangements out. We go up to this studio in North Toronto. He lays them all down with all these different guys. And Getty comes up at like 5 o'clock to do the vocals. And I... I was thinking about this because I regret to this day having not videotaped Getty singing disco in the country because <laughs> he basically did one take of this. Like he's such an awesome performer. We played him the tracks. He's like, this is awesome. He got behind the mic and then he did his yodel and <laughs> they like turned into those guys. But those were our backing tracks for when we shot. And then Alex wanted to be Slovich. He wanted to be the, that guy, Neil wanted to be O'Malley, the, the cop, and uh, Getty was Gershon. And um, one of my best pals, his father introduced us to a tradition of making sausage every year. We make Italian sausage <laughs> every year. We're called the Sausage Brotherhood. But our, slo- our slogan is, nobody beats our sausage. <laughs> so that's what's on the, the uh, headline when you, pull, when you fly into Gershon. That's the slogan, right? Um, but that particular film, it was such a reward because we, we sketched it all out. We had rough dialogue. But what the plan was when we went in to shoot it was we'd let Getty, Alex, and Neil improv because we were shooting wide shots and sort of coverage. Not, not coverage, but just wide shots and establishing shots of the band. We would let them riff. And then at the end of the day, myself and the continuity person went into their trailer and we sort of reviewed all the best lines. And then so I went home and took all the best lines and then laid it out in a format. So the next day it was all coverage on in medium and close-ups of Getty, Alex and Neil. So all the lines in that film are basically the guys just riffing with each other. That's why it has such a, a sort of a such personality. Cause it, cause it really, it really is them. Right. And then one, one last, it's actually many last things, but the best part <laughs> of the whole thing was, I think we were in Albuquerque at the start of that. I forget. Like what, what would happen at the beginning of every tour, you'd go rehearse it somewhere. And, mm-hmm. But on opening night, this film starts to play. And then the fans are like, huh? What's this? Disco? Huh? What's this? 
wait, that's Alex on the fat suit, huh? What's, the fans <laughs> were so confused, but when the filter turned it into the real spirit of radio, they go, fucking ape shit. Like, they're, they're screaming and yelling, and it was like the best opening ever. It just like you're on a high and you never went down. It was, it was so much fun. You know, I think that's why they come across as such good actors. If they're improving with each other, which I'm sure they joke around all the time. That's why that that scene came out so great. They're just uh, you know kicking it around like they always do. Well, it's so true. And and, and uh, Kugula, the the girl, is Getty's daughter. Oh, really? Yeah, it's Getty's daughter. So like uh, when we were shooting her close up, uh, she had a couple lines, but she improved the line. Uh, it doesn't suck so bad this time. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what Getty's like. Ah, sometimes people hate things that suck. It's <laughs> fantastic. In the intermission film, the idea was we're shooting uh, the Tom Sawyer video when the guys were young, and the director was Getty, and uh, Slobovich was playing their manager Ray. Um, but he accidentally hits the the time machine button, and they mm-hmm. go backwards and forwards and backwards in time. So they became cavemen, they became babies, they became eight-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, and right. it, it was actually very funny. But my daughter played seven-year-old Alex. Oh, wow. Which is, no way. Yeah, which is really fun. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's awesome. So on the Clockwork Angels video, Dale, you did these watchmaker films that were just fantastic. Uh, tell us about those. Well, again, the process was similar in that we'd sort of brainstorm on you know, different things. And one of the ideas was that, that the band would be um, dwarfs. And Getty had licensed a script from Jay Baruchel. Um, so he was in conversations with Jay. So he was like, hey, maybe we can get Jay involved. But I think Neil really latched onto the idea of them being, well, in fact, they're gnomes. They did not <laughs> want to be referred to as dwarfs. Little imps. Yeah. So because the whole style of the tour had wandered into steampunk, courtesy of the time machine uh, look, we wanted to design this environment that was like futuristic. And I mean, that's sort of the whole story of the Clockwork Angels anyway. And again, so we just sort of met multiple times and shot sort of figured out what we wanted to do rift on the script on the on the couple of shoot days the the kid running from the train at the beginning of um i forget the opening song now ding 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 but the kid running for the train was uh was my son oh wow uh he's only on there for two seconds but (laughs) (laughs) but yeah the guys really like the idea of being gnomes and then we shot as we, we did a few times, like when we did Time Machine, we shot shot them as Gershon, O'Malley, and Slobovich. We shot them doing uh, Closer to the Heart, <laughs> like looking like that. Uh, we shot another song, like one take each. And then on Clockwork, we shot, I think we shot Tom Sawyer with Jay Baruchel playing keyboards, which <laughs> I think ended up as an extra on, um, actually it ended up in Cinema Strangiato. Because that, uh, that Clockwork Angels, video that's pretty pretty high concept stuff <laughs> you know what i mean it's the guy's like an actuator comes with the with the pad he wants to talk to the watchmaker and they're like no I'm gonna like you know they're just like they're just messing with this guy i love it well and th- again the improv uh that comes out of these guys is just like you put them in a costume 
and, <laughs> and you become that character. And that's a beautiful thing about an actor. An actor is a chameleon, and they turn into that person. So as, as gnomes, they, <laughs> they, they just they, they love that as the role. And we shot it all forced perspective with different angles to make them look the size that they were. But at the end, when you see um, Alex, like he's, he's laughing at the, at the uh, Jay and, you know, when they did the black eye gag yeah. and he's like, Oh, I just think I passed an egg. And then Getty's laughing his ass off. That's like legitimate. Like that's what they would do. They would just like, they would react so honestly to the situation. I, I'm not going to remember the language of this, but I just came across the um, program for uh, Clockwork Angels, and Neil wrote a beautiful thing in the program. He always wrote the intro to the mm-hmm. program, but he wrote something like, well, well, he was preparing album concepts with Hugh Syme. Getty was doing video concepts with Dale and Alan, and, um, and they became actors Mm-hmm. Alex and, and Neil became actors, but he referred to it as uh, less music, more comedy, because <laughs> they actually loved doing it. But in the end, he said, ah, I forget the exact words, but he, he basically backpedaled a little bit and said there's always more music. But So you directed not only the Clockwork Angels concert video, but the R40 concert video. Now, at the time you were recording that, did you also have Time Stand Still in mind? Were you working on both of those at the same time, or did Time Stand Still come after the R40 video? No, we we um, I was the creative director of that of that tour as well. So we were designing the the whole show, and we had pitched the idea of um, a documentary, and then of course there was going to be a live show, and it was targeted as Toronto, which was fantastic because this this actually circles back. I was in a sausage brothers sausage making thing. And I had to leave early because <laughs> Alan said, we got to go scout the ACC and pick out our, our camera positions. Um, but um, which was rare because that didn't always happen, you know, cause they, they need to block seats. So you can say, I want a camera here and I want a camera there. But we were pr- basically prepping the concert, the live show, mm-hmm. um, prepping the, the, the concert shoot, and then working on the documentary all at the same time, uh, which was like so much fun because that tour, a tour uh, as the final chapter of Rush Live had like the concert was so great. The documentary was such a, I think, such a beautiful tribute to the fans and the support that the guys had seen for 40 years. Yeah, it was a real privilege to be part of all of that. I'll, I'll tell you a, a a quick story while I remember it of the um, R40 at the, the live shoot in Toronto. Um, it was shot over two nights and um, we shot the first night and we were always buttoned down with, with shooting stuff. We had a, it was the one and only time that they've got this big score clock over top of center ice. They were changing it. So it was gone. Oh wow. So we had this wire cam that ran diagonally across the arena and we had this grid pattern to tell the, the, the gripologist to go to A or D, F. Like, we got, got all these great positions, but um, we shot the first night, and it, it wasn't very good. Like, there was technical problems. There was exposure problems. It was like the Howard's lights were too hot. It wasn't his fault. Um, but the, the cameras didn't like Howard's lights, basically. 
and the, the Getty's bass didn't work in the second song. It was just fraught with like not good stuff. So Friday comes along. We, we reconvened on Thursday and did a couple of things. And then Friday comes along and we had a production meeting before we shot on Friday. And I basically said to our guys like, hey, you know what? This is history. This is probably the last time the band's going to play in Toronto. This is probably the last time they're going to play in this venue. It's your responsibility to make this show great. And sometimes when you're doing live shows, you can't hear. But the, the thing to the guys was make every shot long. Don't wait for me to say move. This is a fill. We, we want shots that last 30 seconds so you can sort of take in. But make this, make this something you're proud of because we're about to experience history. And the guys went out, they're all like charged. It was like, you know, before a Stanley Cup playoff game or something. And they, they went out and they were all charged. The band comes out, they're on fire. They are on fire. Every song, we nailed it. Every song, they nailed it. And after the show, we're downstairs at the ACC and that, whatever that lounge is down there. And Getty comes walking in and he sees me and he comes running over. He goes, oh my God, that's the best we have ever played for a live DVD. Wow. Yeah. And you really feel it. You really feel it. Yeah. So going into that tour, you know, even as fans, I remember Steve and I, when we saw it the first time, we're like, what if this is going to be the last tour? We were just talking. I think it was at, where was it at? Um, in Newark, right, Steve? Yeah, it was at the Prudential Center. Mm -hmm. We were like, I wonder if this is going to be, this is going to be the last tour. It definitely going to be the last tour. But when you're filming, did the realization that it was actually going to be the, the last time build? Like at the beginning, were you thinking like us, like, oh, it might be the last time. But then toward the end, the, the, narr the narrative of the, the movie kind of is like, oh boy, we really know this is the end. I, I think it, it became, you're talking about the documentary now, right? Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, going in, there was always the talk that the door would be open to extending the dates. And Ray had talked to Neil about extending the dates. And, but um, I think it, it, yeah, it became, you know, he had, he had the, the swollen foot issue and it, it became, no, it's not going to happen. So we went down to Los Angeles for, I think it was August 1st. We went down for that last show. and. I tell you what, that was the most emotional thing. One of the most emotional things I've ever experienced because the whole place was just, it was thick because we knew it was done. We knew that they're not continuing this tour. If, if it starts up again, it's going to be in a few months, but this was like the line in the sand. Um, Getty and Alex were both not very, they were just struggling to stay happy and, and the fans were not, they knew they had this feeling. And I remember being at the forum in the, in the audience when Getty walked out for sound check and he walked over and gave me a hug and I did everything not to cry. Cause it was like, <laughs> I don't want to start his crying. Right. Cause, right. cause he knew. And then as the show went on, it, it, it just, um, it was like, okay, 10 songs left. Okay. Nine songs left. Okay. Eight songs left. And our, our mission was to, to get that feeling of what everybody was getting from that show, but also make sure our camera guys got the emotion of our key people, Martin and, and, and Jillian for the doc and in the front, 
and all the all the fans that we had seen throughout the tour because it was tough. It was tough. Um, but Neil was happy. You know, Neil mm. Neil Neil was done and he was sort of he knew that I mean every tour he didn't want to do it. it it's physically hard on him, you know. He as he said in his interview in the documentary, he said his job he's an athlete. Mm. He's an athlete, and and um, could I play Charlie Watts parts when I'm seventy? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Can I play Neil Parts parts? Not a chance. Right. Neil Peart's parts. I said Neil Parts Peart. <laughs> <laughs> and when Neil came out from behind the drums and hugged the guys, something he's never done, and always said that he would never do. That must have been just the final realization, right? That it was over. Well, you know, when we were in LA shooting the closing film for for our forty, I was out for dinner with Getty and and, and Alan, and I said, "Hey, you know, if this is going to be your last tour, you guys should do the classic rock and roll bow at the end." And he's like, "Love it, love it. You got to convince Neil." And I'm like. I got to convince him. He's like, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, so I, I ask Alex, Alex is cool with it, but I'm thinking, oh. like I've got, uh, anyway, we were, I forget where that tour rehearsed, but um, uh, Neil was in a really good mood this day. And he was, uh, not that he wasn't in good moods always, but he was wearing roller skates with no wrist protectors, like classic old, the, you know, the roller skates with yeah. the four yeah. wheels. Yeah. I'm like, shouldn't you have like the wrist things on? He goes, nah. <laughs> anyway, he was just having a lot of fun. And um, we're up on stage doing something. He comes up and I go, okay, this is my moment. This is my moment. So I go over and, uh, and say, Hey, you know, maybe I had this idea. I talked to Getty and Alex about it. And they're cool. And, you know, what do you, what do you think about coming down and doing a classic bow with you? And he's like, Oh no, no, Papa bear doesn't cross that line. Papa bear stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, but no, no, he was like defiant and, and Gump, his, his, uh, his roadie, he was an awesome guy. He's just looking at me like saw me like fall flat on the stage, like right. rejected. But, um, uh, it was proposed again. I think Getty asked him for the Toronto show and he was again, not into it. I mean, Getty warned us that it might happen, but no, but if you remember in the documentary, Neil would never commit to it. And it, mm -hmm. Getty and Alex had no idea. Like in Los Angeles, they had no idea. And then when he took his photos uh, of the guys at work, mm -hmm. he, he made the choice at that particular moment that he was going to go down there and do the bow with them. And it, we were like all scrambling in the pit. Cause we were like looking at them and looking for, we had, two or three cameramen, but it was like, Oh my God, that is, there it is. We, we, we got it. But I can tell you a little, little detail that I think is so interesting in the documentary is we follow Getty and Alex down the tunnel where it's super emotional and the gardens playing and Alex puts his arm around Getty as they go into the dressing room door, basically for the last time you can see through the sliver as the door's closing Neil on the TV screen waving goodbye. And it's just like so touching. It's a very subtle thing, but it's, it's, it's so touching. And as you said, it was touching and emotional. When we saw it in the theater years ago, 
it was emotional. But now that Neil's no longer with us, I mean, it's just, it's, it's tough to hold back the tears watching this. It, it, it's, it is, it is hard to watch, but uh, um, I mean, it's great to watch. And it, it's again, to have, have the honesty on, on screen from, from the guys is, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good final film to, to, to share with the fans and, and, to have people like Jillian and Martin and, you know, those fans coming out and being so honest and, and, and testimonial, about their their lifelong relationship, having Obama involved. <laughs> yeah. That was cool too. Yeah. And speaking of the fans, Steve and I were talking before the, the podcast. It's really, it's a, it's a documentary about the tour, but it's also a documentary about the fans, the fans relationship to the band. So how did you choose who was going to represent the fans like Jillian? So um, Rush had done uh, something in Europe with a guy named Matthew Miller, who just goes by Miller. Only his mom gets to call it by Matthew. Miller. <laughs> uh, awesome guy. But we had this idea to, to put him, embed him in with the crew and, and Alan convinced the, um, the production to have him run their video, an aspect of their live video, with the bonus that Miller was with the band every single day. And because of that, me and Alan would do a call with Miller once a week and, and give him a list of, hey, can we get this? Can we get this? Can we get this? His, his mission was always to get fans but his mission was also to, to find his moments with the band where he could get like the guard down limo ride with Getty, like uh, Neil talking about his motorcycle trips, having somebody in the middle of it in, embedded as a crew member and actually a super good guy. He's an awesome guy. He managed to get a ton of great material for us that again was guard down and, and very honest. Did I answer that question? I think you did. I think you did, yeah. What about Ray Warzniak? Tell us about going to Ray's house and seeing his incredible collection. So that was Miller again. Miller, <laughs> wherever wherever the, uh, was it Buffalo? Yeah, he's in Buffalo. He met Ray at the show and, and Ray invited him to come down. So he sucked it up. He went down and, and raised like nonstop. I mean, the guy's like some of the stuff he's pulling out of his filing cabinets is just incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, we've had him on the podcast twice. And the second time we were talking, we were talking about his collection the second time. Yes. Yes. So we were talking and before the show started, I said, uh, do you have the first, you have a bootleg of the first show that I ever saw 1987 or 1986. And he's like, Hold on. He goes back 30 seconds later. He's like, no, I have the night before, but not the night you went. He knows where everything is in that house. How about the interviews with Getty, Alex, and Neil? Was it a conscious decision, Dale, to have Getty and Alex separate from Neil with those interviews? I mean, Neil was done at his garage in Los Angeles, it looks like, and Getty and Alex were at a different location. Was that a conscious decision or just worked out that way? At that point, Neil hadn't even agreed to do an interview. And we had done a doc, a baseball documentary. We had two people involved in the interview and just loved the camaraderie. And since Getty and Alex are really so, so tight and so funny together, we thought having inter interview them separately and interview them together would bring out 
like great stuff. And in fact, at the end of Getty's interview, Alex walked in the door. We were in this sort of barren sort of garage and um, Alex walked in at the very tail end of Getty's interview. And he's like, is that, that stupid Serbian? I, had, I forget what, he, <laughs> what his line was, but he, he just like calls out Alex and they both start belly laughing. And it like, there's a lot of good stuff on the floor that didn't fit the, the story arc, but they, they make each other laugh. And that, and that was, that was the goal of having them together, you know, one-on-one, they could tell their stories and express their emotions of the band and what it meant to end. But um, seeing them together was like uh, intentional to, to get some laughter just because look, that film makes you cry, but you had to laugh too. I mean, the, the, the best thing about filmmaking is ups and downs. If, if you, if you, if you cry, you got to laugh too. And it's just, uh, you need to have the two perspectives. Now, what has been, well, I guess the, the, the reception from fans like us is, it's, you know, the movie's fantastic. Have you met people, fans who are just like over the moon about, about the doc? Yeah, it, it, it has such a, it's, there's an honesty to it. There's an honesty from the fans and there's an honesty from the guys. And I think, like, I think the the reality of it all is because we had worked together for so long, it wasn't like a stranger coming in to interview. Like the interviews were done. Me, it was me, Dave Bedini, the writer and Alan, and we're all familiar guys. And, and I've known Alan's obviously know them forever. I've known them for a long time. I've worked with them for a long time. And then Bedini's known them for a long time. Um, it's different than a, a news guy coming in or a journalist that hasn't met them before. There's, it's a relationship. So I, I really felt we got honesty out of these interviews that we might not have gotten. And in fact, Alan and I had to become the guardians of what was said. Like, wait, that's too honest. Like, right. We, we can't show that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think it was a blessing for the film to take away that, that barrier and, and let the guys talk honestly. So I love um, in, in LA and, and um, when, when Dave asked about, um, you know, get, Neil was talking about the drummer being the hardest job and Dave asked, well, what about the guitar player? And he's like, oh, well, the blister <laughs> on my little finger. <laughs> so what about the music you included in the documentary? I would think it's not difficult to find the perfect rush song to, to go with each segment with all the different styles and textures of rush. I mean, how great was that to have Rush's catalog to be the soundtrack of this? Well, it was, it was awesome. I mean, and the fact that we had shot the live show that we could pull from and it was fantastic. And, and to have, uh, to have, when we edited it, it, we edited the opening first and we edited the ending first. So, um, that gave us the bookends of mm-hmm. where we were going to go with the story. And when we put the garden in at the very end. Oh yeah. It, it, it was like, we didn't have the middle anywhere started and we were already crying. It's like, this is going to be <laughs> hard to do, but the guys are so emotional at the beginning talking about the end that when you just saw those two segments, you knew that, okay, this, this is, this is going to be good. Um, as far as I know, 
and I hope I'm not stepping out of bounds here. I, I, I don't think Getty has watched the film. Mm. Wow. And he says, it's just too hard. Like he, he, I haven't asked him for a couple of years because I don't want to ask him anymore, but he, it's just too hard. It, it, you know, and now that Neil's gone, I think it's even harder, but, um, you know, as he said in the film, it's just like, that's, the, that's the end. Like you've, you've lived your whole life in this cocoon and now, now it's gone. I watched the documentary with my younger daughter. She's 15 and she's really into music, you know, and she watched, she watches Rush with me for, I don't know why she watches Rush with me, but I ask her to, and she says, yes. And, you know, at the end, she was sitting there like this, like, like she doesn't even know the band. She doesn't know anything about the band really, except that I play it all the time. And at the end of the movie, she was just like, like shaking her head. Like, I can't believe it's the end, you know? <laughs> It was it's a, such an impactful uh, movie. I, I, it's just a great movie. Yeah. My wife was crying at the end too. She she cries at the end of every movie, but <laughs> but she was crying at the end. The funny thing is, when we watch movies together as a family, I start to well up and I'm holding back and I look and my whole family's staring at me like, "Are you gonna cry? Really? It's not that sad." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm gonna cry." <laughs> we were watching Toy Story three once when the when my kids were youngish i think my older one was probably 12 so that makes the younger one like eight and they were on one side of the couch my wife and i were on the other side of the couch and there's that scene at the end where they're all going into like the the recycling thing and they're going to get chopped up into little pieces and <laughs> i'm going to choked up just thinking about it and <laughs> and buzz like tries to reach for woody and woody tries to reach for but we lost we, it's like we had never cried in our lives before. It was a deluge of so much emotion. And then the two of them were like, what are you, what's going on over there? We cried for, I couldn't even stop crying. It was so emotional. Do, do you guys listen to um, the podcast Conan O'Brien needs a friend? No, <laughs> no, no. Okay. It's a, it's, it's fantastic. There's lots of, lots of funny, like it's funny. But Tom Hanks was on one episode talking about having COVID and, and all, all sorts of stuff. He's just such a, such a great interview. But he told this great story of when, when he gets into elevators and, and people see him, parents with their kid, the parents mm. kind of look at him and sort of acknowledge who he is. And he looks at the kid and he's like, you don't know who I am, do you? And then he goes into his Woody voice and then oh. all of a sudden the kids are like, oh my God, it's Woody. <laughs> That's we, awesome. we are, we are big toy story fans. Yeah. You know, my son wanted me to ask you a question. When you were interviewing Peggy, there was a, a foot in the shot. That's your foot. Is that your foot? That's my foot. <laughs> he wanted to know if you deliberately left the foot in the shot. <laughs> I didn't even notice the foot. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was, um, she was one of the first interviews we did. Oh yeah. We were down in, Again, I, I, I don't know. I don't remember where, but when we, when we were rehearsing the tour, what happens at the start of the tours, you go down to a place the the management buys out a venue for like five days. They set up the lights and they dress rehearse the show every single night at eight mm -hmm. o'clock. So they pretend every single night to show night. 
and we got to work out all the choreography, the amps being moved around and, and all the, how the video stuff was working. Oh God, yeah. And we would make adju- adjustments every single night because it's, it's live, right? But Alan and I had said, we're going to do some interviews while we're down there. We interviewed Peggy and uh, John Perrant, the, the president of the record company, Brian Hyatt, who was doing a cover mm-hmm. story for them on Rolling Stone. But um, I remember the way we would do the interviews is uh, Matt Miller shot those interviews. We had two cameras, but we would set it up and the interviews always want to be a conversation. And so I don't like looking at a monitor, but there's a monitor down on the floor so I can see what the framings are in case I want to adjust them. And uh, at one point I saw my foot in there, (laughs) but it was like, eh. What the heck? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Converse, and it was like, oh, that's a little little signature. If anybody sees that, good on them. So good on your kid for noticing there's a Converse. <laughs> He'll be happy to hear that. Another thing I wanted to circle back to, you mentioned the dress rehearsal with you know changing the washing machines and the, and the chicken fryers and stuff like that. That last concert, you know, R40, was such a gift to the fans from the band, I think. Just seeing everything go backwards. And at the end, just disco ball, amps on, straight back chairs. That was just fantastic. I just want to say that. Yeah, thanks. That was um, that was a, a, a nice collaboration. In fact, it was, um, uh, I guess it was the summer before that tour. And Getty called up and said, let's, let's get ahead of this and come up with ideas. So we went and had lunch at a little little diner around the corner from where we live and we started spitballing all these ideas and um just coming up with idea after idea and writing them down i'm, I'm a note taker i just like as you're as we're coming up with stuff i write notes down and it was fun um but it was very very early and then everything got put on hold because neil wasn't prepared to tour i forget what the timeline was but i think it was like november or something and howard calls and says okay the tour is going to happen and Getty says, you have all these great ideas. What are they? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, from your lunch, what were the ideas at lunch? I'm like, I'll have to, uh, uh, okay. So then I ended up having an email exchange with Getty. And he was like, the one, we, the, the one about the, the reverse, the, the, uh, the show in reverse. That, that, that's the one I think we should go with. So that's, we then started, I prepared a treatment. And it, it was a lot of work, but it was, my God, it was so so fantastic to be part of it all because we we started out as a uh, sort of a concept with you know how it could go and and then it just kept going and going and, and getty had gone he had booked a trip to new zealand with his wife so as me and alan are sort of prepping this with like video stuff we would do a, a, a like a facetime with him once a week and sort of update him as to where we are on, on, the, on the production. He'd be in his robe with a coffee, sitting on this beautiful <laughs> Peter Jackson mountainscape. We'd be going, okay, here we are. But yeah, it was, uh, that, that was certainly a fun one to do. And were those props, they weren't the original ones, right? You had to make new ones or were some of them in storage somewhere? No, they're, they're all fake. All those amps, all those amps are fake. The wall of amps at the beginning of set two, when the when the curtain goes up and you see Alex against this giant wall, they're all hollow. So they were designed to sort of collapse and be put into a truck because they all everything had to fit into a truck, right? And everything had to be taken down during the show. 
Yeah, so it had to be lightweight. Yeah, but we, um, yeah, f- figuring all that out. I mean, that's that's what the dress rehearsals were about because that that tour in particular was a combination of live music and theater. So it, you know, it all had to be choreographed so that it worked. Because yeah, I just remember the uh, seeing some of those tours and remembering, oh yeah, the washing machines and oh yeah, the the rotisserie chickens when a guy dresses a chicken came out to baste them. <laughs> yeah. It was just so strange at the time when we saw the shows and then to see it again, it was just like, man, this really is a, a walk down memory lane. Yeah. Yeah. And have them finish in the gymnasium was like, uh, yeah, that was brilliant. You just, you knew it was over. Yeah. The whole crew was into it too. Like the, they, they more than ever, they were just, um, coming up with ideas about where to put mics and turning the dress rehearsals that the two lighting guys came out and um, they hadn't received the stands for those park hands that we wanted on stage. They were being shipped from somewhere. So during the dress rehearsals, the two lighting guys would come out and just hold them there. And then we're like, that's awesome. So in the actual show, we put them in the red coveralls and they just stood there with these two park cans because we wanted them to have, you know, that classic old rock and roll look. But it's just little, little subtle things that made it entertaining if you're looking. You know, that's, that's the other thing about the documentary that, you know, people forget how emotional it is for the crew. I mean, they were with Rush for almost their entire careers. Yeah. I mean, so tough to see them get emotional at the end too. Absolutely. It, I mean, those, the thing about Rush is they're very loyal. They, they, when they start working with people and they like working with those people, they stick with them. I mean, I've, I worked with them for a long time and, and they could have easily gone on to tons of different people, but when they find people they like, they, they're family. And, and, and that's why it's got such a special behind the scenes camaraderie is that, that they're, they're loyal with management. They're loyal with crew. They're loyal with, everybody they like to work with when they find a team they they stick with it so dale what's next for you and rush is there a future for you getty and alex to work again together i don't know i I would i would hope so but i don't know i mean covid has certainly thrown a wrench into things getty as i think you know had the big big book of bass Mm -hmm. which was basically his rock star tour he was loving it you know traveling all over the world with his book that became his passion. Like when the tour ended, uh, him and Richard holed up in his, his house and took photos of his collection and created that epic book. And then he started touring it, but it all came to a halt with COVID. Is there an opportunity for something? I, I would hope so. I, I think that, you know, Getty is a, a very driven guy and um, he was always the first one to sort of, push for tours I, I i listened to the beatles podcast or the beatles on sirius sirius satellite and there's this great line from ringo where uh paul was such a workaholic that uh ringo would be hanging out with john and ringo would go oh no it's paul calling he wants us to go back in the studio and work again <laughs> <laughs> and getty's like that getty's just like okay i got an idea let's let's do this like he was always the guy sort of pushing and Alex was always, always in Neil, of course, was always a little, um, you know, wasn't sure, but, um, I think Getty's such a driven guy that I don't know. I would think something might happen, but I, I, I really don't know. I would love, I would love if it did. 
I'm sure you guys would love it. I'm sure the fans would love it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know we speak for all Rush fans by saying that we love your work, Dale, over the years with Rush, and uh, we wish you the best in what you're working on in the future. That's awesome. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Jerry. All right, thanks. So, Jer, I had no idea how heavily involved Dale was with all things Rush. I mean, he came up with the idea for the R40 tour. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. Guy's got his finger in every pot. Yeah, and such great stories. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was really, really great to talk to him. Yeah, fantastic. And I wasn't kidding about that movie, Time Stand Still. I mean, so emotional to watch it now that Neil has passed. Yeah. And the fact that Getty has never watched it. Yeah, that tells you a lot, right? And he he didn't want to watch it before Neil had died. Right. I know. And now forget about it. Yeah, I mean, we saw it together in the theaters. I think it was like one night only or something like that, and maybe just a very limited run. Mm-hmm. And at the end, you know, it was, it was a struggle to keep it together, actually. And I think everyone in the theater felt the same way. There was a kind of like a, like during the movie when they were like playing songs and stuff like that, you could feel that the crowd in the, in the theater was amped. And it was crowded. That mm-hmm. theater was full. But toward the end, man, oof, it was like a totally different vibe. Yeah. And if I were Dale, I would take that as a compliment because oh, yeah. I'm sure Getty knows that Dale did a fantastic job on that documentary. And that's why he doesn't right. want to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause he captured all of the emotion. Yeah. I mean, there's no way if I'm Getty, I want to watch. I kind of agree with him, Yep. but rush fans, if you haven't seen time stand still, make sure you see it. It's, it's yeah. well worth viewing. You can find us on Twitter at rush fancast Instagram. We are at the rush cast email, Jerry, let him know what you thought of our conversation with Dale Heslip at the rushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro was done masterfully by Lex. And Jer, I hope you have a quote for me. Yes. Do you want to take a stab at what I'm going to quote from? Time stands still. You got it, Steve. Yes. Freeze this moment a little bit longer. Make each sensation a little bit stronger. Make each impression a little bit stronger. Freeze this motion a little bit longer. Thanks, Jer. Thanks, Steve. Have a good one. All right, see ya.